Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant. Grant, welcome back to Opera for Everyone. It's so great to be here. Well, this is a very special episode because we are doing an opera that you did way back when, the very first episode of Opera for Everyone, live before we recorded these episodes. And in fact, it's the very first opera that I ever saw when I was just a kid. And it made such an impression on me, and it's uh, no small part of why I'm here today. Wow, (laughs) that's fabulous. Well, I was not part of that. You were working with Keeley that summer day at the KHOL radio station, and that was a live performance, and I was listening, and it was fabulous. Well, we've got big shoes to fill. (laughs) This is, this is an excellent opera. I have had requests for this, and I was waiting till you were free to be able to reprise your role and talk to us about your love of this opera. Strauss conjures up great affection for many opera lovers, and I'm looking forward to you sharing that with us. And I, I know that you also know something about the Habsburgs, and they're going to come up in this opera as well. Yeah, well, I'm always here to help out with the history. And, you know, if I have to do something from the last 2,000 years, then it's a little bit of a hardship, but we'll make it work. (laughs) I I have every confidence in you. Before we jump into the plot or anything specific about the story of De Rose and Cavalier, I'd like to highlight the fact that this is not the first opera that Strauss did with his very famous collaborator, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, But it's the first one that they really work on extensively, collaboratively, together to craft the opera. So, Grant, you and I and Jocelyn worked together on Zolome, that first big smash success that Strauss had. That was not with Hugo von Hofmannsthal. That was, well, that was Strauss just editing up Oscar Wilde's play to create this amazing opera, Zolome. And he followed that up later by working with Hofmannsthal on a pre-existing work, Elektra. And that was also a very successful opera. But once they got to know each other and worked together, Strauss believed it was time to do something a little different. And in fact, the description for Der Rosenkavalier is a comedy for musique, a musical comedy. Now, I'm not sure anyone watching Der Rosenkavalier would call this a musical comedy, but there are comic moments for sure. And when you compare it to Zalame, it's uh, it's positively a, a laughter riot. <laughs> That's true. Generally, it's much cheerier than Zalame is. Far fewer of the characters end up beheaded. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there, there are definitely some comic characters, and, and uh, there are a lot of moments that can be played for laughs in this, even though there are some very serious uh, themes and moments and musings as we go through the story. Now, Grant, are we ready to start talking about the setting and plot of De Rosencavalier? Rosencavalier opens in the mid-18th century, mid-1700s, a few decades before the American Revolution and the French Revolution and all those big upheavals. Vienna, one of the wealthiest and most powerful cities in the world. And we are in a palace in the bedroom of a field marshal. The field marshal himself is nowhere to be seen, and we will hear very little of him throughout this play, because it is his wife who is the focus 
We find ourselves in a huge and beautiful room. And in this huge and beautiful room, there's a large bed with a beautiful woman's arm barely visible. And nearby, there is a small sofa with a sword in its scabbard lying on it. The martial end is barely even visible, lying in bed, mostly covered up with her young lover there beside her, Octavian. Young and handsome and delicate features, in fact, in the actual opera played by a woman, a soprano or mezzo-soprano, who is playing a pants role, which gets interesting, as we'll see later on. (laughs) And so every story has to either start with a moment of bliss that is going to be shattered or sadness that is going to be made right. And this story begins in a place of bliss. These two, very much in love, in the height of luxury. And we know, because we know stories, that this cannot last. Well, that's our romantic comedy, huh? (laughs) Yes, Octavian will begin, What you once were, what you are now. No one can know, no one can suspect. This is their, their secret love these two have while her husband is away. That is Octavian and the Marcheline in Der Rosenkavalier by Richard Strauss. Nighttime is over. Morning and all of its activities are beginning. And we hear the little tinkling of bells and they're not going to be left alone in the bedroom forever. They hear the bustling of servants and people outside and they are worried. They worry that The field marshal is going to return, and there is no good that can come of that. There is noise outside, and suddenly a servant enters the room with breakfast. Octavian must hide. Mm. He hides as best as he can. Those heavy draperies come in handy, don't they? (laughs) They they so often do in this kind of show, right? (laughs) And they... He leaves a sword behind. That sword that uh, was was his did not belong to the field marshal's wife. No. He leaves it behind, and and the marshal in she scolds him. Once the servant has left. Oh, oh, of course he cannot be seen. <laughs> he doesn't take well to the scolding. No, he's quite offended. He feels that she has called him impolite and boorish. She is at the height of manners and culture, and well manners and culture we will see are very much at issue in this 
opera. Mm. But he is, in certain ways, just very young and immature and insecure, as young people in love sometimes are. But beyond that, there is also something of a romantic past. She is an adult woman with adult responsibilities, and he is, as she calls him repeatedly, a boy. Yes. And to some extent, that sword is a toy or a marker of status. Although, as we will see, and as our good friend Chekhov would remind us, (laughs) a weapon that is seen in the first act will probably end up being used. Uh, Yes. (laughs) But we'll have to hold on to that thought. And also... It's worth pointing out the difference in their ages, because that is key to this story as well. He is actually a boy, a young man. He is meant to be 17 years old. So in many ways at this age, he is a man. He has certain rights and privileges given to grown men. And he is at the age when people fall in love and court and all the rest of it. But he is not a full adult with adult responsibilities as she is. Right. Well, she is a princess. She is the wife of the field marshal who is off in the wars for his empire. And she, after all, is 32 years old and presented as, a, as an older woman here. We don't think of 32 as older, but in this context, yes, yes, she is. She's been married for some time. And she is beyond the age at which women would generally continue to court seriously. Certainly. She can and does have a lover. And interestingly, their conversation briefly turns to her husband. There's typically a a portrait of him on the set, and Octavian is gloating that he doesn't have to go and do the things that the field marshal has to go do. He gets to be here with her. And then the Marshalline mentions that her husband showed up in her dreams, throwing Octavian into a peak of jealousy. And even though the field marshal appears in her dreams, it is not romantic, as Octavian fears. It is that he makes her afraid. Yeah. The Marshalline had no choice in who she married, a point that is made a few times in this opera. And like royalty often must, she is wedded to someone out of a political necessity rather than anything to do with love. Yeah, so her dream was a a dream of fear. Well, the morning continues. They hear more noises outside of the bedroom, and they fear again this man's voice they hear is the field marshal. There are people coming, and the marshal and the princess, she says to her lover, it's my husband. Now this time he remembers his sword, grabs it, and he tries to hide, but his path is cut off by a number of the servants coming in, and he must hide in the wardrobe, or so she tells him. And for one brief moment, showing his romanticism and his naivete, he offers to jump in the path of the field marshal, this young man with his sword clutched in his hand. But the princess will have none of this, and she commands him to hide. Turns out that man's voice, that's not her husband at all. No, it is the Baron Ox. The Baron Ox? With a name like Ox, you know he's a man of just gentleness and grace. (laughs) The Baron is her cousin, and he has come to her for, well, help of a sort. And 
he's very sure of himself. After all, he sent a letter to her explaining that he needs to visit her. And, well, she didn't read it because she was so busy with her charming young lover, Octavian. But he tells the servants, well, of course her grace will see me. It doesn't matter what time of the morning it is. I'm going in. we just heard is the Baron, who has made his way into the Marshallens' bedroom. She is ready to greet people because that's what happens in the morning when a dignified person of rank arises. The full complement of people who will ultimately join her in the bedroom are not there yet. But as he has come into the bedroom, Grant, there is a young serving maid who is not typically there who has made an appearance. And doesn't she look awfully familiar? In fact, she looks an <laughs> awful lot like Octavian. Yes, she she sort of does. And she looks a little maybe hastily dressed. <laughs> Indeed. Octavian has put on women's clothes, which I'll remind everyone, Octavian is a pants roll. So you've actually got a woman playing a man now dressed as a woman. With a nod to Mozart and Carabino, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, and as Baron Ox is pushing his way in to see his cousin, who he feels he has every right to see, because he is a person of great rank, and that's how persons of great rank behave, he can't help but turn his head to look at this pretty young thing that he has just spotted in skirts. Indeed, Octavian is uh, apparently an eye-catchingly pretty person, whatever presenting gender. Exactly. The Marshallin is smitten. The Baron is certainly interested, and he remains interested through the entire scene. The Marshallin notices and is in fact amused by the Baron's interest in Octavian dressed up as a maid and introduces him 
to her chambermaid and says, oh, this is uh, Mariendel. Mariendel is, is my maid, and she is so important to me. The Baron is not entirely gracious. In fact, did you hear in the music those, those drums that were meant to be his big clomping footsteps as he marched his way into her bedroom? He is, as it were, a bull in a china shop. <laughs> An ox. And to be clear, ox in German means exactly what it sounds like in English. He is an ox, a large, clumsy, powerful, oafish animal. Well, this barren ox wants something from his powerful cousin, the Marcheline. And you can hear his tone change when he speaks to her, trying to be ingratiating. And he's aware of the difference in status and power. In fact, in this encounter and in all the other encounters we see him in, he is an interesting character because he is noble in all the most literal ways. He is a member of the noble class, and he acts as such. But he is ignoble in all of the more metaphorical and frankly more important ways. And so it is this interesting thing that he is perpetually rude, except when it is a matter of class distinction, except when it's a matter of him interacting with someone who is in a superior place in the hierarchy, and in this case, the Marshallin. Yes, he refers to her as your grace. What does he want from her? Baron Ox is about to be married. He's planning on formally proposing to a beautiful young woman, Sophie, but far more important to him than her being a beautiful young woman, she (laughs) is the daughter of a very wealthy man. And so it will substantially improve Baron Ox's fortunes to marry her. And so it's very important to him that all of the little steps be done correctly. And the most important step at this time is choosing a Rosen Cavalier. Right. The knight who must deliver this rose, this silver rose of significance only in the world of this story. Yeah, it's a totally made up custom. But it's important (laughs) for what we're trying to do in this story, which is have a reason why he needs to have this other person involved. And he comes to his cousin, the Marshallin, and says, hey, do you know anybody who would make a good Rosen Cavalier? Right, someone from our family, someone noble. And and also to point out, the reason why this matches is absolutely classic, not just in this story, but would resonate for any audience member. Nobility, as they lose their fortune, it, it was classic for them to marry wealthy parvenus, wealthy nouveau riche. Which is to say, people who actually made money due to work or good fortune or having built something rather than simply inheriting it. Exactly. And in this story, Herfaninal, Sophie's father, has made tremendous wealth by selling arms to the army of the empire. And it's worth mentioning here that this is a time of tremendous military conflict. Austria was struggling to defend her borders against the rising power of Prussia and the mighty Russian Tsardom, and it was touch and go. There was a lot of back and forth and real politic and wars that went on for decades and oftentimes resulted in no territorial changes whatsoever. But 
wars that go on for a very long time and don't <laughs> achieve victory are great for one kind of person, and that is... The arms dealer. War profiteers. Yep. Yeah. Yep, and that is exactly what Sophie's father has made his fortune doing. And in addition, the member of the nobility, the field marshal, he has maintained his status through his service in war as traditional for the nobility, as a leader of the army. And meanwhile, there are these new rich who have attained power and wealth and prominence through business, through commerce, through the manufacture and distribution of weaponry. Yeah. Well, we have the Baron Ox. They're trying to get a little piece of this by marrying into this family, by marrying Sophie. But in order to do this, he has to observe the propriety holding up his nobility by having a Rosen Cavalier. And not only that, he's going to need to ask the Marshallene for the services of her notary, because you've got to do it all legally if you're going to be married in a marriage contract. But the whole time that he's conversing with the Marshallene about these matters of importance to his future, he's swiveling between the Marshallene and these discussions and flirting outrageously and, I might say, crudely with Mariandel with Octavian dressed up as a woman, because he finds her to be awfully charming. Yes, it really tells you all you need to know about this man, that he sees a attractive-looking servant and proceeds to casually sexually harass her for the entire length of time that he's having a separate conversation that has nothing to do with her whatsoever. Right, and a conversation about his own marriage. Yes. And the Marshalline will comment on this, and he just waves it off and, and explains that, after all, it's, uh, that's what he does. That's his right to go after prey. And he speaks of it that way, which is not very pleasing for her to hear. But she endures. She puts up with it. She's a, she's a great lady who has great dignity. And one of the things he admires about Mariandel is he thinks that she is so good-looking. She must have good blood in her. And the Marshallin says he has a keen eye. He's a good observer. Which is amusing, because, of course, he is of noble breeding. He is a count. The Octavian, yes, underneath those skirts, he is a count. <laughs> but but her, her confirmation of his observation... He misunderstands. He says, oh, I understand. She's a child of nature. Which is to say a child born out of wedlock through dalliance with uh, servants or other members of the lower classes. And he misunderstands it all, but he compliments the Marshallene for, for keeping such a child in her service. And almost like a wink, wink, nod, nod and says, yeah, yeah, my valet over there. That's actually, you know, my son <laughs> that I can't acknowledge, so I keep him as my valet. That's, again, that's what we well-born people do. <laughs> he's a very mm. charming chap, really. Oh, he's a mess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Marshallin says, okay, all right, you need an envoy to deliver this rose to your intended. Uh -huh. I know just the person. There's a count, a cousin of mine, Count Octavian. Um, Marianda, will you... Go fetch that locket so that we can show the <laughs> we can show this count to the uh, to the Baron here. And indeed, 
she, he shows the locket, and the Baron is quite impressed. Not only is the person a count, a higher rank than Baron, but further, he is a fine-looking young man. And in fact, fine-looking in a very familiar sort of way. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) A recently familiar way. Yeah, and it instantly the Baron knows that this count is related to Mariandel. And I think we should listen to that revelation here. This is Der Rosenkavalier by Richard Strauss, and I'm Pat Wright, here with Grant. And Grant, there was a lot going on in that short clip we just played. But before we get into the commotion of the end of that clip, I'd like to just comment about the exchange between the Marchalene and her cousin, the Baron. He's asking her a favor as he's trying to flirt slash seduce this chambermaid of hers, but as in the prior selection where the Baron is there, there's a little snatch of waltz music, waltz beat that we hear when the Baron is present very often as he edges towards elegance and he tries to affect a Viennese elegance. And that's anachronistic to this time period of the mid-18th century. Of course, the waltz is the height of style in the late 
19th century and well known in the early 20th century when this opera is first produced. And that's a good lead into the fact that this whole opera has an odd relationship with time and setting. We've talked a few times, and I'll I'll continue to refer to the fact that this is set in Maria Theresa's Austria. At the same time, it's written in the twilight of the, by then, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and just a few years before its final collapse and dissolution. And there is, in both the setting and in the moment in history when it was produced, this idea of a changing of eras. And part of that is represented here by the old guard nobility versus the new up-and-coming mercantile class. And part of that is represented by, in certain ways, these anachronistic elements of what is style, what is nobility. What did that mean then? What does that mean now? And the sense of some of these characters, the Marshall N in particular, as being caught just on the wrong side of a change in era. That's right. And the concept of time, she's going to she's going to face that head on right at the end of this act. So, about all that commotion. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of commotion. The levee, which is this ceremony of royalty or high nobility, this waking up where it's not like you get up in the privacy of your own bedroom if you are a great personage. People come and and perform various duties and expect things of you during your waking hours. And that's exactly what happens in the Marshallin's bedroom. Because there is no privacy for the Marshallin. Not really. No. Her bedroom is a public place in the same way that her marriage is a public institution. That's right. So a lot of people have just entered the room. And who are all these people making such a commotion? Well, <laughs> it's it's quite a variety, actually. You might have heard those, those sweet voices in harmony. We have a trio of orphans of noble parentage who come in and they receive alms from the tender-hearted Marshallin. After they sing for her, we also have an animal seller. You have a milliner who might like to sell her a hat. Her notary, who is on staff, comes in and she will direct the notary towards Ox because that is something he has asked for. Her hairdresser comes in. That actually makes sense to me. That's part of the morning getting ready for the day. And you also have two interesting figures, these people who are identified as intriguers. Grant... Could you describe what an intriguer would be? It's sort of this catch-all term for these parasitic (laughs) hangers-on in courts who would spend all of their time trying to learn things and develop knowledge and play that against people and acquire wealth and power in the way. Uh, Their job in our modern world is mostly done by gossip columnists Mm. and paparazzi, Mm -hmm. but... It was a major function of every royal court, as it is in the venues of both celebrity and government to this day. And they they will explicitly try to interest the Marshallin in some of their information that they have for sale. And she waves them off. She has no time for their nonsense. But we're not done with them in this plot. So... Two other people who come into the room are uh, a flautist and an Italian singer. And this is just a fun little cameo role that appears in this opera. And it's always interesting to see in a production of this opera who 
who is this Italian singer? It will be a, a tenor who will just do a beautiful piece, but never quite gets the respect he deserves. And that's just how it's written in this show, because it, it's this chaos of this scene in her bedroom with so many things going on. And just a note here in this particular recording, we will tell you who all the singers are after the halfway mark of our show, like we always do. But I'll mention just here because it's, it's brief. The Italian tenor here is a young Luciano Pavarotti. I've heard of him. <laughs> still very busy in the Marshallin's bedroom and the hairdresser has finished his work and hands the Marshallin a mirror and she's <gasps> appalled. She looks at herself and the dignified hairdo that the hairdresser has given her makes her tell the hairdresser, but you've made me look like an old woman. And he's appalled that that's her response, but he tries to fix it and please her, but she, she doesn't really want him to fuss anymore. She's ready to move on with her day. The damage has been done. It has, yes. That's exactly right. And in the end of the day, she's not really mad at the hairdresser. She's mad that she's gradually becoming an older woman. And she is a dignified lady. She is a lady with a certain amount of gravitas. And broadly more mature than everyone else around her throughout the entire play without question, more sensible also. Our two intriguers are still on the scene 
and they approach the Baron. And they say, oh, I think perhaps you might need some help. You're, you're going to be married soon. Perhaps you would be jealous. Perhaps you would like us to look into your future wife and we could keep tabs on what's going on there. We could be of service to you. We know everything that's going on. The thing he really wants to know about is this chambermaid, Mariandel. Yes, and they look at each other and they've never heard of Mariandel. Because Mariandel didn't exist this morning. <laughs> yes, yes, but they want to be of service and they'd like to secure this new client, so they fake it. They decide, oh yeah, sure, we can help you out there. We'll get you everything you need to know about Mariandel. Yeah, and they make it known to him that the services are not entirely for free. It's not just that they're friends. But he ignores the implication because he's not looking to give anything away that he doesn't have to, be it money or power or prestige or any of the rest of it. No, no, but there's something he does need to deliver right now. And he tells the Marshalen, here, I have something to give to you. I would like to present you, and he gets his valet, to bring in a lovely box which will contain the all-important silver rose to be presented in the all-important presentation of the silver rose by de Rosencavalier. He does ask for the chambermaid, Mariandel, to be there to receive it, but... She's managed to slip out in all the hubbub, and the marshal end says that's not necessary. She accepts the box, puts it down on the table, and at this point, it's time for everyone to leave her room. I feel like no one's ever seen Mariandel and Octavian in the same place. It makes you really wonder. <laughs> well, the marshal end is now alone in her own room, and she has a moment to reflect on what's just happened with her puffed-up cousin, as she calls him. She's not very impressed, but she's resigned to the way of the world as she refers to it. And she's reflecting on, as you put it, the damage that is already done, referring to the fact that she's grown older. And she does take some time to think about the fact that she used to be a younger person on the outside that people would recognize. And over time, people are going to see her as an older person. And there's nothing to be done about it, even though she feels the same on the inside. It's, it's a mystery to her, but she is willing to credit the Lord with that mystery, even though she's confounded by it. And it's interesting because in many ways, the Marshallin is the character in the story with the most agency and certainly the character with the most raw power. But we see her constantly powerless, whether it's to the ravages of time, or within the confines of her marriage, or the demands of her social position, or in a number of ways that are coming up real fast here. <laughs> she doesn't have power over so many things in her life, and yet she remains, in certain real ways, both more mature and wise and in touch than any of the other characters, and part of that maturity is reflected in both the contemplation that's on display here and also the piety that she, perhaps paradoxically or confusingly, displays as part of this. Yes, and the piety 
as well as the contemplation, will continue throughout the end of this act. But right now, during this moment of contemplation, it is time for Octavian to re-enter the scene in his own clothing. And he sees her looking seemingly downcast. And he's worried that she looks a little sad. But, but it, it occurs to him he knows exactly why she's sad. Of course he does. He says, well, you were sad because you were worried about me. You were scared about my safety. But don't worry, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she smiles. Oh, 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 yes, 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 you're safe. Of course you are. And, and he tries to bring them back to the place that they were right at the beginning of this show. He, he tries to bring them back to that, that moment when they woke up in the morning and they were enjoying the afterglow of their, of their night together. And he just says, oh, say that you're mine. Say that you're just all mine. And this doesn't land well with her. Because things have changed. The bliss has been broken. And she's also given some thought to how men behave. How this rough man, Baron Ox, behaves. How her husband, who frightened her, even if he's just in a dream, scared her. They behave possessively, and they want to own her like a possession. And she says, don't be like all men. Don't be like my husband. Not like my cousin Ox. Be gentle. Be sensible. Be gentle and good. Something about that repetition of gentle. Feels like we may have hit on a major theme, and also just the tremendous pathos of it, that she's in a world where these men are... Well, the opposite of gentle, which is ultimately, and as we will see in this play, violent. Right. And she sees potential in young Octavian. Ich kann halt meinen Gedanken nicht, warum du traurig 
Octavian and the Marshallin are alone in her room, and Octavian's not able to get back to the place where they were after their beautiful night. You can never step in the same river twice. No, time moves on. Yeah. And the Marshallin even says that she's conscious of the frailty of everything around her. That we can hold nothing, we can hug nothing, and everything slips through our fingers. She's really thinking about time and the passage of time. And she's about to reflect on that very deeply. But even at this level, Octavian is is afraid of where she's going with this line of thinking. And he begins to cry. (laughs) And she says to herself, and now... I even have to console the boy. Consoling the boy. It's uh, almost parental, right? It's its this yeah. understanding that she is, in many real ways, quite apart and beyond her chronological age. She is the adult in the room, and he is not. He's in the process of growing up, but it's a process. And, and that's, I think, what she sees in him, is that I think she sees in him someone who can grow up. Yes. Somebody like Baron Ox is not going to grow up. No. Spoiler alert, there is no redemption story here for Baron Ox. He <laughs> is the kind of person who just can't grow up and remains in that state of just wanting everything their way for their entire lives. And that is why she says to Octavian, don't be like all other men. She wants to see him genuinely grow up into a kind and mature person right and it's and it's intriguing because you get the sense of why she loves him what she sees in him he's not just a beautiful young man it's that she sees a world that is cruel and broken and she sees this person who she hopes can be a part of making that better that's so beautiful and she has so many deep thoughts about what's swirling on around her, about Octavian, and she's very deeply in thought about the passage of time in her own life. And she's going to speak to him about the passage of time and what a strange thing it is. And in this next song that we're going to hear at the end of Act One, she's going to to tell him about how it it goes by time and you don't pay any attention to it in your youth. It doesn't seem to matter, the passage of time. It doesn't matter at all until you come to the age and time is all that matters. And that's where she is right now. And there's this wonderful line she delivers where she, she explains that sometimes she gets up in the middle of the night and she's so oppressed by this idea of the passage of time. This isn't something she's just thinking about for the first time right now. She gets up in the middle of the night and she actually walks around and stops the clocks in her home in a vain attempt to stop time. It's a beautiful and kind of horrifying image. And it's worth saying there's the personal and the political context, which get tied up very neatly in this play. She's mostly referred to as the Marshallin throughout the story. But when we do hear her name, her name is Maria Teresa, the same as the Empress in the time where the opera is set. Maria Teresa was in many ways a very powerful monarch who represented this strong point for Austria, even as it became clear that Austria was going to decline. And the decline 
started as soon as she was no longer the reigning monarch and continued until Strauss's day when it was relatively clear that the Austro-Hungarian Empire did not have long to live. And it was an empire on its way out. And there is this identification of the person of the Marcheline with the fate of Austria, which was very important and very dear to Strauss himself. Yeah. 
And as part of her musings about time, the Marshalen in Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier tells young Octavian that she knows their time together will not last. Their relationship is not one that will last over time. She knows that he will move on to another, more likely someone who's more appropriate for a long-term relationship. She knows that, and that's not something that he yet understands. And interestingly, by knowing that, she makes it happen because she she muses about it and she tells him it's going to happen and essentially she pushes him away right at this very moment. There's been such tenderness early on, but she says, no, it's going to change. And so it does. She tells him to leave. And it is an interesting musing on what maturity is and means. Because a part of being an adult is having a sense of time. Part of being an adult is that you are aware that there is the thing that needs to be done tomorrow and the day after and the day after that and what needs to happen in a month or a year. Yes. And she is aware that this cannot last forever in a way that he just isn't. The day has begun and he wants it to still be the night. He wants to return to how things were and doesn't understand that time moves on. Yeah, that's that's so well put. And he he does understand when she commands him, you must go now. She says, I'm going to church. I have to visit my old and crippled uncle and I will be dining with him and perhaps we'll see one another later. But the tone has changed completely. He obeys her command and he leaves. Suddenly, however, she has a pang of regret and she realizes, I didn't even kiss him goodbye. I didn't even properly send him off. And, and she sends her servants running out to, to retrieve him. But, but it's too late. He has gone. They can't retrieve him. And the end of the act has her alone, completely and utterly alone. So what's she going to do in the next act? She's not going to appear whatsoever in the next act. And isn't that a fascinating decision to have the protagonist of the story not be in the second act of a three-act play? Well, she doesn't even show up again until the end of the third act. Which is remarkable. Yes. She is the moral center of this entire story, but she's done what she needs to do. The story will continue on. And we're going to learn a lot more about the other characters, but we will not see the Marshallan again until the second half of the third act. And now, on to act two. opens in an entirely different setting. We are in the home of Herr von Faninal. That is the father of Sophie. Sophie, the intended of Baron Ox, cousin of the Marshallen. That man with the loud booming voice who had burst into the Marshallen's bedroom, among other things, requesting Der Rosenkavalier, the 
envoy to bear the silver rose to his fiancée. And Sophie is there with her father and her nursemaid and everyone, the household staff, they are eagerly awaiting the arrival of this envoy with the rose. It is a moment of tremendous excitement. It would be a moment of excitement for any fiancé to experience this ceremony, but particularly so for this family because it's marking the passage into an elevated status. This family which has risen in stature in terms of earning money is now going to rise tremendously in stature by marrying into a family related to the highest nobility in the land. So the excitement is at a fevered pitch and everyone is looking out the windows and Sophie is just 15 years old. Proper age to be married at this point. She is just fresh out of the convent something that was referred to by the Marshallin when she was recalling her youth and getting married. This is what is happening with Sophie. Sophie is alternating between being prayerful and mindful of the sacrament that awaits her, the sacrament of marriage, and being very excited about getting married. that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. We air Sundays from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Grant. Welcome back, Grant. It's fun to be here. I'm very grateful for your help today. <laughs> it's a wonderful opera. We were talking about this offline a little bit. Is It's amazing how much the more you dive into the precise details and the language and the plot beats, the more comes out of it, the more you get out of it. You know, Grant, one time you said to me, Literature is a story that we're never done with. And I feel like that applies to this story completely. Yeah, absolutely true. The, the more you dive into it, the more you 
learn from it and the more you get out of it. And I've really enjoyed in terms of preparing for this, getting to go over it and making more and more connections. This is the first opera I ever saw. I feel like I know it pretty well. I've even done a previous opera for everyone on it, Lost the Mists of Time, but I'm still learning from it. And I think that's very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, hats off to librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal and to Richard Strauss. I know that they worked back and forth and back and forth to craft this. And and in fact, this was the first libretto that Hugo von Hofmannsthal wrote specifically for Strauss to make into an opera. Others would follow, but this was a smashing success when they first presented it. And I'm just so glad that we're doing it. I want to take a moment to thank the people involved in the production of the CD that we're using today for our music. The CD we're listening to was recorded in 1969 with the Vienna Philharmonic and the Vienna State Opera Chorus under the direction of Sir Georg Scholte. Régine Crespin sings the role of the Marshallin. Baron Ox is sung by Manfred Jungwirth. Octavian is sung by Ivan Minton. Herr von Faninal is sung by Otto Wiener. Sophie, his daughter, is sung by Helen Donath. Marianne is sung by Emily Luce. Valzaki is sung by Murray Dickey. And Anina is sung by Anne Howells. And of course, I mentioned earlier, the Italian tenor sung by a young Luciano Pavarotti. Thank you to all the people involved in the production of this beautiful music. Well, Grant, you know what time it is. Is it opera helmet time? It's time for the opera helmet quiz. Why don't you tell us about this relationship between Octavian and the Marshallin? Once upon a time, there was a handsome, gallant young knight and a beautiful princess. And the gallant knight fell in love with the princess, but unfortunately the princess, she had been married to a man that she did not choose many years ago. And so the knight and the princess, they were in love and they were lovers, but she knew it could not last. And so she regrets that things cannot continue as they are and that eventually the young knight will find someone else. Meanwhile, a villainous noble is seeking the hand of a beautiful young maiden and is enlisting the help of the young knight and the beautiful princess. And we're not so sure about this, because that wicked noble is all sorts of trouble. And I think soon we are going to meet the young maiden to whom he is about to be betrothed, and we'll see what kind of a person she is, and maybe find out what the future has in store for her and the rest of our characters. Well, you answered my question and then some. (laughs) I can barely wait to find out how this all works out. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about that beautiful young maiden, Sophie. Fonfaninal. She is eagerly awaiting the arrival of the handsome young knight, Der Rosenkavalier, our title character. Because Octavian, the handsome young knight, lover of the Marshallin, 
is going to present the proposal for the barren ox. It turns out this is a completely made-up custom. It didn't happen in real life, and one can see why, having seen this opera. It turns out there is a problem with sending someone extremely charming to deliver your proposal who isn't you. <laughs> well, particularly if you're as uncharming as barren oxes, mm-hmm. as we shall see. But in the beginning of Act Two, Sophie is very eager. She is a pious young woman fresh out of the convent. So she is prayerful as she awaits her impending marriage. But she's also excited like any young woman would be thinking about getting married. And she's mindful of what her father has told her, that this is a good match, that this will ennoble their family, that this is a great step forward for their family. But not only that, she reflects on the fact that she feels very alone in the world. She mentions that her mother has died and she doesn't feel emotionally supported at all by her father. Her father has calculations that he makes, but she doesn't have kind counsel. So she really has to fend for herself and she feels like connecting with a husband is exactly what she's meant to do. And now the commotion in the room really amps up because some of the servants have spotted the approach of the carriages and in detail they observe the grandeur with which this Rosen Cavalier approaches and Sophie tells herself to be humble but she just swoons it's so lovely and momentarily the rose bearer resplendent in white will enter and this is our Octavian from Act One, and he is doing his duty as the envoy for Baron Ox, carrying the silver rose. There are several elements to the ceremony, but let's just play the clip of the presentation of the rose itself, from Octavian to Sophie, with all of the servants watching, but not her father, because her father is off in a side room with her fiance, as custom dictates. This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Der Rosen Cavalier by Richard Strauss. And we have just heard the ceremony where the rose is presented to young Sophie by the Rosen Cavalier himself, Octavian. And she is 
overwhelmed by the beauty of the rose and by the beauty of the ceremony, and she says, it's like a greeting from heaven. Where and when have I ever been so happy? In fact, she's not the only one who says that. He says that as well when he looks at her. Do you think we're still talking about the rose? I think the rose is a symbol. Hmm. And immediately they fall in love. They do. And we have a little time because fortunately part of this ceremony includes a formal, informal, chat between the rose bearer and the young bride-to-be. And so most of the servants depart. Marianne, the nursemaid to Sophie, remains, of course. But Sophie and Octavian have a moment to chat with one another and Sophie lets Octavian know she knows exactly who he is because she's read about her entire family-to-be in a book. She Facebook stalked him? (laughs) Well, the Facebook of her day, yes, she did. She looked in the book that would tell all about, all about the family. And at this point, we hear Octavian talking to himself really just about how lovely he finds her to be and how charming. She's trying to engage him in conversation. And he is just smitten. You know, some people, when they're when they're smitten, they just chatter, 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 and some people are just, whoa. And that's kind of the encounter we're having between these two. Absolutely, but her chatter actually has some real poignant content. Mm-hmm. Her chatter is about marriage into this family. She hasn't even met the Baron yet, so as far as she knows, he's as wonderful as Octavian. And she says, well, well you don't understand about what marriage means to a woman, because... I need a husband before I can be anything. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be indebted to my husband because he will make me something. And it's interesting because part of what's happening in this conversation is we are seeing the collision of the old nobility and the new nobility. Octavian is a member of the old nobility. He has bloodlines written in books that go back for centuries. Yes. Sophie is the daughter of a war profiteer and it's through her father's cleverness and deals that he has made and even his ruthlessness that she has attained the position that she has and it's really interesting seeing the things that each of them are assuming and expecting and what this all means to each of them he is he's almost an arthurian knight he's the chivalrous knight in love and she is a businessman's daughter doing her research, trying to understand how the whole nobility thing works and all the customs and the families, and also seeing it as a way to alter her status. Octavian comes from a world where you don't alter your status. Your status just is what it is. All of this is true, and there's also the gender element. Yes. Because even when there was no status differential, or arguably any differential that existed with the Marshallin and Octavian put Octavian at a slightly lower station, there was still the gender difference. And so, I mean, there is the gender difference, and she's right that who she marries makes all the difference. Yes. So, (laughs) anyway, all of this has to stop when the door opens, and her father, Herr von Faninal, enters with her bridegroom, the Baron Ox. And he is, uh, let's say... A slight contrast to the gentleman she has just met. I would probably not use the word slight. He is a decided contrast. <laughs> he, 
he grabs her hand and you think he's going to be gracious. Instead, he, he's checking her over like an animal and she pretty quickly makes that comparison out loud. And he doesn't even speak to her like a human being. Yeah. All the negotiation is between her father and the Baron. Right. As Sophie is doing all of her homework, getting ready to enter the class of nobility, she is immediately confronted with the best and the worst. She is confronted with the best traits of nobility, that is chivalry and honor and beauty and ceremony, and then the worst traits, the the self-importance, the entitlement, and indeed the objectification and implicitly violence. Right, to the extent that when he comes in, his retinue marches with him and nearly knocks Sophie over onto the ground. And Marianne, her maid, she remains starstruck by all of this. She remains impressed by the nobility of his title and who he is. But Sophie immediately is having second thoughts and she is taking offense because as you point out, she has seen what a true gentleman, true nobility can be like in the person of Octavian. The Baron catches a glimpse of his envoy, this Rosen Cavalier, who up till now, he has only seen in a locket, in a picture. And he is struck in person even more strongly than he was when he saw the picture in the locket of the resemblance this envoy has to the maid that he met in the Marshallin's bedroom. Oh my, he looks just like Mariandel. He doesn't use the name at that point, but we know who he's thinking about when he comments on a resemblance. Which is, of course, a reminder of the uncouth and, frankly, abusive ways that he is known to treat women and women's servants in particular. And he doesn't keep it to himself. No, no, no uh, (laughs) concealment whatsoever. And he tells Octavian in a sort of conspiratorial, we nobles sort of way, and he says to Octavian approvingly, yeah, your father was a randy dog too, just like me. I'm like that too. My valet over there, he's a natural child. (laughs) (laughs) What a charmer this man is. Oh, and Octavian, he was disgusted already by the way that he was treating beautiful young Sophie. And he's further disgusted with every action that Ox takes. To Octavian, the Baron's behavior is boorish. But the Baron himself describes what Octavian and Sophie think of as politeness and grace as phoniness or silly nonsense. His argument is that everything should be free and easy. And that is is his way. It is often the case in literature and indeed in real life that the excuse of people who are unkind to others is they're just living how they want to live and it turns out that left to their own devices a lot of people live in ways that are profoundly unkind and abusive even of others right baron ox's boorish and uncouth behavior continues when fonfaninal graciously offers him wine and he's somewhat insulting about the quality of the wine and he once again conspiratorially makes an aside to his noble cousin Octavian and says we have to show these petty nobles that we're far above them in status we can never admit them to our level 
and Octavian, you can see his anger rising with all of this behavior building and building when Baron Ox grabs Sophie by the wrist and tries to force a kiss on her. Sophie, to her credit, she continues to push back on him as her father and her maid are encouraging her to behave kindly to her future husband. She finally snaps and says, stop it, we are not on such familiar terms. And Baron Ox essentially calls her a prude and says, you're unsophisticated, my dear. In Paris, when people are engaged, they can do anything in public. Even the king will watch. It's fine. And at all of this, Octavian is, at this point, fingering his sword, which is on his side, part of the outfit that he's wearing for this ceremony. (laughs) He does seem to always have that thing on him. Well, that's what you do if you're in his class. Yeah. And von Faninal, her father, is beaming because here he uh, he has two of these nobles in his own home. He's just wishing that his walls were made of glass so that the neighbors could be envious of his good fortune. And Marianne, the maid who attends to Sophie, just can't believe their good fortune as well. And Sophie just wants to be rid of this man. She is utterly offended by the way she is being treated by him. And the Baron, he just laughs it off. (laughs) She's just... Oh, you'll you'll be broken. I'll fix you. I like a young woman with spirit. I mean, he, he speaks of her like a horse that needs to be broken. And blood gets mentioned again. Blood gets mentioned a lot, in a lot of different contexts, in a lot of different ways in this show. And he, he admires the blood rushing to her cheeks to the extent that he admires it being so hot in her cheeks that he might just burn himself. Octavian tries so hard to suppress his rage that the glass of wine that he's holding in his hand gets crushed. And you will hear that on the track that we're about to play. I'm 
just heard a little bit menacing there that's the baron very pleased with himself believing himself to be incredibly seductive with his lovely young bride-to-be Sophie she's furious with the way he's treating her and he sings what I find to be a menacing song to her and we'll hear this repeatedly throughout the opera He says, with me, there will be no room too small. Without me, every day for you, so sad. With me, no night for you, too long. I know, it just makes your skin crawl. (laughs) You know, I know enough about stories to know that when someone is acting this gross, we're starting to root for bad things to happen to them. (laughs) We'll see, we'll see. At this moment, however, she does finally break free from his embrace and Octavian is continuing to try to maintain his composure because he knows that's what he ought to do. And finally, the tension of the moment is released because Sophie's father enters with the notary and a clerk and the Baron must step out with Sophie's father to conclude the negotiations. And the Baron is, is very well aware that he's leaving Sophie alone with Octavian, well, at least with Marianne present. Is he very worried about that? <laughs> Not in the least. Quite the opposite, in fact. He still thinks that he and Octavian are on the same team. It's, it's sort of like, he thinks it's almost a bro moment, I think. Yeah. He tells Octavian that he would consider it a service if Octavian would help out with his quote-unquote unbroken horse. After all, he says it would be a benefit to the husband. And Octavian, again, struggles to keep a straight face. Finally, the father, Baron Ox, leave. And Octavian instantly asks Sophie, are you going to marry this man? (laughs) (laughs) Directly, Sophie answers, not for all the world. And then she realizes, oh, no, I've offended you. He's your cousin. (laughs) But Octavian lets her know, oh, no, oh, no, really, I just met him, just met him the other day. It's, I'm not offended. I'm relieved to hear it, honestly. (laughs) So Sophie says, will you help me? And, And they have to be a little careful because Marianne is, of course, right there as the chaperone. You don't leave two young people alone no matter who they are but something's got to happen to put these two alone together because we need that dramatically the majordomo of the household runs in and says I mean you could almost guess this all of the servants of the baron have gotten drunk and they're accosting all of the servants of the von Vaninal household and Marianne needs to come help rescue those poor servants so she runs out leaving Octavian and Sophie alone And this gives us a moment for the two of them to not only have fallen in love, which they've already done, to sing a song of love together, 
but also one where they pledge mutual support and aid to one another. to Der Rosenkavalier. Well, I promised you a love song right before that clip, but it didn't finish up like a love song, did it, Grant? Yeah, it's almost like it got interrupted somehow. Well, we have intriguers, not just at court. They're skulking around in the corner everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, they're nothing but trouble. And it's worth pointing out here their Italianness and how that plays into a story about Austria and Austrians. Now... The history between Italy and Austria is a long and complicated one, but suffice it to say, at the time that this opera was written and first performed, on the eve of the First World War, Italy and Austria were bitter rivals. And indeed, Italy's involvement in the First World War was in large part just an attempt to get back at Austria in particular. And so there's a lot of bad blood that exists certainly in the time of composition. The situation is more complicated in the time of setting, but these characters are nefarious. And for right now, they are nothing but trouble. Yes. They've screamed the Baron's name so that they can point at these two and and show the Baron that she is betraying him. But the Baron comes in and, and all he can do is congratulate Octavian. You know how to make the best of it. You're only 17, but I have to laugh at you, you young dog. (laughs) Octavian, again, trying to be dignified, utterly offended. He turns to Sophie because during their moments alone, he has told Sophie, you have to speak up. Your father, Baron Ox, they have to know that you object to this match. And she can't get the words out. And she lets him know, I need your help. I need you to help me. And so little by little, he tries to say to help the young lady, the young lady. And he finally gets the young lady in brief does not like you. And that's his moment. He's gotten it out. Mm-hmm. And in his world, that should be enough. Yes, because he too is a romantic. But the Baron, 
he's not really that kind of noble. Baron's like, okay, she'll learn to like me. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, and it just starts getting uglier and uglier. Because at that point, Octavian says, you're not a gentleman. If there's anything of a gentleman in you, this is sufficient. And of course, to say that someone who is a gentleman is not a gentleman is, well, those are what we call fighting words. Exactly. And Octavian says, sir, I think we need to go out to the garden. And you know what that means. It means a duel. And the Baron just wants to laugh it off. Thanks for softening her up, old boy. I've got it from here. And he doesn't even pay any attention to how Sophie's feeling or what she's saying. He's not really paying much attention to Octavian either, for that matter. But Octavian will not be brushed off. It's hard to brush someone off who's got a sword. And finally, because the Baron will not be a gentleman and go outside with him, he does pull out a sword. Octavian is trying to get the Baron to take this seriously. The Baron will not, and Octavian draws his sword and says, This is serious. Draw your own weapon and protect yourself. Yeah. The Baron is just incredulous. He says, what are, you, what are you doing? Are you possessed? And Octavian challenges him repeatedly, like, draw your sword. Octavian's not going to just attack him with his sword, as even though he's angry enough to do so. He's trying to get the Baron to obey the rules of gentlemanly conduct. Because after all, the Baron has insulted a woman. Right. The most classic possible reason for a duel is to defend the honor of a lady. And ultimately, the Baron does draw his sword. And it will not surprise anyone to know that the would-be chivalrous knight is a far better swordsman than the bumbling Baron. And the Baron is swiftly wounded in the upper arm. Not a serious wound. Octavian does not appear to have been trying to kill the Baron. But... A wound, nonetheless. And I remember so very vividly, this play was the first opera I've ever seen. And as a child, I remember this moment vividly. Because they were both dressed in white. Indeed, the whole stage set was a creamy white color with bronze accent. And at this moment, you see the bright red blood start to come out. And it is a striking moment. We've had all this talk of blood so far, and now we see it, and it breaks into this world like a tidal wave. Again, it's a minor injury, but it changes everything. Yes, and the Baron, he can't believe it either. And he starts screaming, murder, murder, my blood! And there is chaos everywhere, except for Octavian, who stands aside, stunned at the Baron's response, still angry, but composed, watching this chaotic scene as the Baron screams about the fact that he is likely to die from these wounds. Oh, man. 
The Baron takes over the scene with his suffering and with his loud noise about suffering. Von Faninal is aghast and appalled that this noble rose bearer would do something so horrific in his home. And he tells Octavian that he needs to leave. And Octavian responds in this beautiful way where he is again this knight in shining armor says, I beg your forgiveness. Yes. I am grieved beyond all measure for this accident, but I am free from blame. Your lordship and your daughter will discover how this came to pass. I apologize for the mess, <laughs> but I was acting honorably. Yes. True nobility. And Fanonal is just confused. He's he's in a world alien to him. Yeah, he, he is, but he doesn't like the commotion. He doesn't know what's going on between these two nobles. He's been wishing that all of the neighbors could see all of the things going on in his house. And now it doesn't make sense to him. And Sophie is saying, I will not marry this man. And he is ever more convinced, no, Sophie, you will marry him. And if he dies of his wounds, I will see to it that you marry his corpse. That's what he says to his 15-year-old daughter. It turns out, surprise, surprise, that the wealthy war profiteer is actually a little ruthless when it comes down to it. Yeah, and meanwhile, we do have the doctor on the scene who makes it clear to anyone who's paying attention to him, the Baron is bandaged up and he's going to be just fine. Yeah, it's a minor wound in the upper arm. The blood is striking, but it is very clear that the Baron is overreacting by calling blood and murder. And it's important that... Octavian refers to this as an accident. He didn't really want to hurt the Baron. And indeed, that's how duels traditionally were. Duels are not a method of hurting people. The idea is that duels are supposed to be a procedure for dealing with slights, with the threat of violence on the tail end. And the idea is that the violence is never supposed to transpire. And things have gone quite wrong when it does, as it has in this case. And the argument between Sophie and her father actually continues further and escalates. And ultimately, she does finally ask her father for forgiveness and say, I'm not really a bad child, father. But Octavian, as he's departing, calls back to her. Don't worry, Sophie, you will hear from me. Reasserting the promises that they made when they were alone together. But now Herophon Faninal has a chance to turn his attention back to the Baron as he tries to appease him, because he still sees the Baron as his ticket to elevation in status. And he thinks maybe he's brought his daughter under control, and he, he brings wine and anything else to the Baron that he wants. And now the Baron has a little bit of chance to rest, and he's drinking a bit. And we're going to finish off Act 2 with him in a little bit of reverie. He's still enjoying this menacing waltz I referred to earlier. Without me, every day for you so sad. With me, no night for you too long. The end of the clip that I'm gonna play here, you're going to hear Anina appear. She is one of our intriguers. She's going to tell the Baron that this letter has been given to her secretly and must be given to him only by her own hands directly.
ask her very nicely to read the letter, but she does. And it turns out it's a letter from Mariendel, the chambermaid that he met and he fancied so much. She has told the gentleman that she would like to meet with him. She was shy when she was in the Marshallen's bedroom. She couldn't let the Marshallen know that she thought he was quite an interesting man. She'll be waiting for his answer. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Something seems fishy about this. Anina's delivered this letter and she says, Sir, don't forget the messenger with her hand out, because of course, this is how these intriguers do make their living. You're supposed to pay for this information and these services. He's very excited because this is what he's been looking for ever since he first laid eyes on Mariandel. Oh boy, yes, yes, yes. I I need paper. I need a pen. I need to write to her. You wait. You wait right there. Don't go anywhere because you must deliver this letter back to her so that I can set up a, a rendezvous with Mariandel. You wait. And she says, yes, sir. Yes, of course, sir. Uh, don't forget the messenger. Several times. And he says, finally, he says, yes, yes, yes. At the end. At the end. So he never gives her any money whatsoever. That sounds like a mistake. He finishes up once again with his happy tune, looking forward to love.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone. This is Der Rosenkavalier. We have finished Act 2, and we are ready to start our third and final act. Grant, we're not in either of the two settings where we were for Act 1 or Act 2. We're in a totally different place? (laughs) Aristotle is going to be so upset with us. (laughs) He'll get over it. (laughs) We are in an inn. Is this a high-class inn? quite the opposite. No, this isn't like a five-star hotel. It's a little bit seedy. It's the kind of place where the Baron might save a little money by renting the room. He might expect not to run into high-class people and be embarrassed with this young lady that he is bringing there. This is the proverbial affair motel, isn't it? It seems to be. In fact, the, the act begins with this pantomime, this orchestral music with actors on stage getting ready and we see Octavian himself making arrangements very clearly directing our two intriguers. Remember how Anina delivered that message to the Baron at the end of Act 2 setting all of this up? Well we know who was behind all of that and here he is now setting things up and it's not just that Valzaki and Anina are there but there's lots of other people there and he's checking trap doors and setting everything up. They are really gonna mess with the Baron's head. So all of this is getting set up and before long, Octavian is gonna have to disappear, but before he disappears, he's gonna do something very important that the Baron never did with the two intriguers. He's gonna pay them? He's going to pay them handsomely. He knows what's important. When you hire people, you must pay them, and you buy their loyalty that way, and he indeed does buy loyalty from these two. It is very funny, right, that that's one of the marks of him as a decent person, is that he doesn't stiff his contractors. (laughs) That's exactly right. He does not. He pays up front, and they know that they can trust him. So he disappears, and he's going to enter with the Baron. But he's going to enter as a dressed-up chambermaid. Which is just such an odd piece of this. I mean, of course, there are lots of operas with mistaken identity and with cross-dressing and with people in disguise and with (laughs) pants rolls. Yes. And yet the way that these things come together in this play, where it's all happening at the same time and in a play which is in deep and significant ways about masculinity and masculine power and femininity and feminine power yeah it's just really interesting just this the gender fluidity at the heart of this meditation on among other things what we would nowadays call toxic masculinity oh you're talking about the baron then huh (laughs) yes yeah yeah no it's very interesting and, and in his own way, Fanonal, and for that matter, the field marshal, both represent manifestations of male, patriarchal, implicitly violent power. Right. It, it's like when the marshaline says, don't be like all men. That's what she's referring to. Yeah, there aren't a lot of men in this story who come across well. And the one who does is quite unusual in his presentation of masculinity and has certain masculine traits, carries a sword around, believes in chivalry, and so on, but is gentler and kinder and more sensitive 
than the other men we meet, and perhaps most significantly, is looking out for the interests of the women around him, rather than always looking out for his own interests. And perhaps that is the true nobility. Yes. Well, here in this scene, we get back to this sense of absolute comedy. We're not going to ponder things seriously for a few minutes here. (laughs) We're going to see all of these characters, these waiters rushing around, the landlord who I think is expecting to profit handsomely from the Baron being present on his premises. And, And the Baron just wants him and his waiters out of the way. My valet will serve. He just wants to know that the bedroom is set up, that the the table is set up for dinner, and uh, you all can leave now. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. He seems to really like and trust that valet. I wonder what sort of, you know, commonality they have. Well, we've already discussed that. He's let us know that uh, there's a a family relationship there, but not one he can publicly acknowledge. And when we finally hear Octavian speak, he really leans into this role as Mariandel, he pretends to be flirtatious, a little embarrassed, but looking around the room, he comments on, oh, what a big bed there is, and oh, there'll be food, how nice, and oh, wait, Baron, you're a bridegroom, oh dear, and she sort of pushes him away, and well, the Baron's not bothered by that, he has an explanation. Yeah, he thinks that he is above all that. Because he is a gentleman, and I think it's useful here to know that the German word is cavalier. Yeah. He's a knight. Not a Rosen cavalier, but he is, in some sense, a knight. A gentleman is able to do these things. He's not one of the common rabble, and whatever he does is in good taste. And it's mere superstition to be held back. It's a fascinating contrast from the way that the Marshallin talks about her rank her, in fact, much higher rank, and her relationship to her responsibilities. Right. Well, back in this scene, the Baron gets a good look at Mariandel, and it suddenly strikes him that face, that face, that accursed boy, and he's reminded of this young man who wounded him. He's, after all, still bandaged from that that wound that he was suffering from so terribly at the end of Act Two. And Octavian pretends to be confused by all of this. And about now, these trap doors, these people start appearing and disappearing. And it's very unsettling for the Baron. People appearing and disappearing? Yes. Octavian doesn't see it. So the Baron says, oh, it's, I'm, it, well, it must be, never mind, never mind. And then we hear that music again. That same waltz tune that we've heard before. Mm. And Octavian will comment on it. And the Baron will even say, yes, it's my favorite song. That was the Baron's tune, all right, but Octavian is not menaced by it, as Sophie was. Before long, we don't just have an apparition coming into the room, we have an actual person burst into the room. And it is, in disguise, our intriguer, Anina. And she comes in yelling, making a big fuss, bringing other people in her trail. 
That's my husband. That's my husband. The Baron has no idea what she's talking about. He can't imagine what she's talking about, but she's screaming, That's my husband. It's always the same. There he is with a woman. He can't do this anymore. And by the way, she's dressed in widow's clothing as if he's pretended to be dead. And she starts yelling, I want justice. I appeal to the Empress to give him back to me. Well, that's a pretty huge threat to this intimate scene that the Baron is trying to have. And yet a nonsensical threat. (laughs) This is not in any direct way a messenger from his actual intended. This is a phantom, a imaginary wife with an imaginary claim on him. It is as a bad dream, a woman in mourning claiming to be his wife interrupting his liaison while faces appear through the trap doors. It's really, truly bizarre. Yes, but at this point, we've got pretty much everyone in the whole inn present. And just to amp up the drama, children run in and they start grabbing onto the Baron and screaming, Papa, Papa, Papa. And amid all this commotion, of course, Valzaki has appeared and Octavian off to the side has said, well, has anyone gone to fetch Faninal? And Valzaki confirms, yes, yes, right at the start, we sent to go get him. And Octavian nods, like the plan is, is going well. And the landlord is, is upset. It may not be the most elegant hotel in the world, but he doesn't want the kind of scandal that this woman seems to be bringing down upon him. And accuses the Baron of bigamy, of having two wives. Well, yes, he says bigamy is no joke. It's a capital offense. And there's just great confusion, and soon people are calling for the police, and all of a sudden, the police arrive! Well, and the Baron is thrilled that the police arrive, because if you're a high-ranking person, you're pretty confident that the police are going to sort things out in your favor, and that's exactly how the Baron feels about this. But the Baron looks kind of a mess. It's not the kind of scenario you want to have to call for help in. (laughs) Sometimes you call for help and you're looking your best, but in reality, much of the time it's not. And (laughs) he has found himself in a rather unpleasant situation entirely of his own making. And Velzaki, who he thinks is in his employ, not that he's ever paid him, when the commissioner of police arrives, to the Baron's great relief, and he says, well, well, who are you? Who can vouch for you? He turns to Valzaki, and Valzaki, much to the Baron's surprise, says, I have no idea who this man is. And so the Baron, who expects that he's simply out of trouble once the police comes, is soon told to sit tight and shut up, and what is all this trouble? He thought that he was going to be shown favoritism and is discovering that in this scenario, he is powerless. Because he hasn't even been sensible enough to pay the people who are helping him. And so they've turned on him. But the commissioner catches a glimpse, because Octavian makes sure he does, of the young woman. The Baron pretty much wants her just to be quiet and not be noticed and just says, well, she's under my protection. It's fine, it's fine. And the police commissioner tries to make him explain, well, who is this young woman? This is not acceptable. And the Baron comes up with a brilliant way to get himself out of trouble. He's such a clever guy. He's such a clever guy. He says, well, (laughs) is there anything wrong with a man having dinner with his fiancée? 
And the police commissioner says, well, no, but who's her father? What's his name and where does he live? His name is Herr von Faninal, and just as soon as he finishes giving the details of Herr von Faninal, who walks in? Herr von Faninal. Of course he does. <laughs> the Baron is none too pleased. He still thinks maybe he can pull this out. Get everyone to stay quiet. Don't let them check notes with each other, but it's not to be. And the Baron even asks Faninal, why are you here? And Faninal says, I was told that you were in danger and I needed to come rescue you. And so the Baron, in the most comedic possible way, well, from our point of view, from his point of view of total desperation, he says of Faninal, He says, that's no one of any importance. He's just an acquaintance. Faninal, who has just, through great effort, earned his elevation, which he had been hoping would be further elevated by this marriage into the Baron's family, was not about to be brushed off as someone unimportant, and he lets everyone know, I am the noble Herr von Faninal. And the Baron has to admit that he can see who Faninal is, but says that it's been a rough evening and he can't quite trust his own eyes. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but soon enough, the truth comes out when Mariandal is seen and he has to say, well, that's no, that's not my daughter. And so with perfect comedic timing, Sophie wanders in immediately to totally clarify that no one is who the Baron says they are. Oh, no. And there's this woman clinging to the Baron, his wife, the children, yelling, Papa, Papa. (laughs) Everyone is aghast that this man would claim to be part of this very elegant-looking family. Compared to the Baron, compared to everything going on, the Faninals look pretty good. But... The whole point of Fadenal trying to marry his daughter into the nobility is to secure prestige. Yep. And this kind of scandal is the exact opposite yes. of what he was going for. Exact opposite. And now we have one more important entrance to be made by one more important personage. The most important personage. At long last, we once again get to see the very elegant Marcelaine, who doesn't appear to belong in this scene at all. But somehow we know when she shows up, things are going to get straightened out. Which is often how comedies end. Some person of rank or importance wanders in to straighten things out. Of course, we've had this bizarre false start with a police chief coming in and trying and failing to sort everything out. And then it is the turn of the princess to come and set things right. And the Baron sees her. He's overwhelmed with gratitude. He says, oh, your grace, your presence here is an unparalleled act of friendship. And she doesn't even meet his eyes. And Octavian sees her surprised and says, Marie-Therese, what are you doing here? But she is elegance and nobility itself and she just surveys the scene taking it all in and lays eyes on the person who appears to be of most authority in the scene at this point the police commissioner and she says oh do you know me i believe i know you 
Yes, you were the field marshal's loyal orderly, weren't you? And he snaps to attention, and he declares himself to be at her service. So... The Baron maybe doesn't feel like she's 100% on his side anymore. And soon the Marshalline has had it with the Baron and tells him to go. She actually has to tell him to go a couple of times, but ultimately she says, preserve your dignity. Or as the original German says, bye Felicia. short order Octavian has gotten out of the Mariandel costume and he's back in Octavian clothing and with the Baron gone we really now must focus on the Marshalline and her relationship with Octavian and Octavian and his relationship with Sophie Octavian's stuck in the middle with these two women that he loves someone's gonna have to make a choice and you would think it would be Octavian's choice but it turns out he finds that choice too difficult and he turns to the Marshalline and she in fact makes the choice for him she recognizes the young love she foresaw it before she even knew of Sophie and the relationship that was forming between them because remember she's been gone for all of that Mm -hmm. all of the last act until this dramatic entrance the Marshalline the top build person in this story is absent in the same way that her powerful husband is absent throughout the whole play and hangs over it she is absent for a very long time leading up to this moment and yet she holds all the power and all the cards and and foresaw this as we're saying well the moment she saw sophie and octavian begins to explain who sophie is the marshalline just shakes her head of course i can see exactly who she is and i find her charming she releases Octavian. Which is very big of her. She is a grand woman. Right at the end of Act 3 here, there is a trio which is justly famous in this opera with these three female voices, Octavian, our pants roll, the Marshalline, and Sophie. As the Marshalline is releasing Octavian, Octavian is profoundly affectionate towards both of these women and Sophie is dutiful and and ready to withdraw if that's the appropriate thing for her to do though she loves Octavian dearly it's it's a beautiful beautiful piece and and interestingly it's a piece of music that Strauss himself said needed to be played at his own funeral And it says something about what, in his mind, it was about. This is about a kind of death. People make a lot of the fact that the tarot card for death 
means change, and there is a kind of death in certain change, and this is one of those changes. There's no going back. No matter how much she would like to, the Marshallenne cannot stop the clock here. <laughs> no, she can't. She accepts it with grace and with dignity. And Sophie and Octavian will end this all with a beautiful love song. And that's how we get our, our happy ending of our comedy fur musique of De Rosen Cavalier. Grant, once again, I thank you wholeheartedly for joining me and taking a good close look at this opera on Opera for Everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe... 
opera, opera is, is for, for everyone. everyone.